In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created. O God, who dost enlighten the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, granted by the gift of the same Spirit, we be always truly wise, and ever rejoice in his consolation through the same Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. We adore thee, O Christ, and we praise thee. Lord Jesus crucified, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Well, my dear brethren, already we're at the end of the mission this, this evening. Consider the, the last three words which our blessed Lord uttered from the cross. The last word which we considered was that of our blessed Lord's cry of abandonment. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? See how our Lord in this case does not actually refer to God as his father because of course he's now crying to God in the abandonment of his human nature. And we saw also how our Lord had taken upon himself every penalty which he could take upon himself which any creature can suffer both in extent and in variety and even to the ultimate, the ultimate penalty which is the abandonment of the soul in hell. Of course, our Lord could not go to hell, the hell of the damned, and of course, he could never be truly abandoned by God. But in his human nature, he suffered what the souls of the damned essentially suffer in this um, feeling of total dereliction and abandonment by Almighty God, which is the pain of loss and the greatest of the pains of hell. Then we saw, of course, how the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the high priests deliberately, quite deliberately and consciously, he, uh, put a false interpretation on the words of our blessed Lord. See how the fact that he cried out these words, the fact that, of course, they recognized that these words were the opening of the great messianic psalm 21, which they would have, they should have, must have, did, know by heart, it was a last appeal to them, really, to recognize that what they were standing there witnessing was the blindingly obvious fulfillment of what David had foretold a thousand years ago. But of course, to they who are, to they who are of ill will, nothing will convince they have blinded themselves. Remember, it was only a short three hours earlier when our Lord had been nailed to the cross that the same people were saying, ah, come down from the cross, perform a miracle, and then we will believe in you. But now they've got before their eyes the fulfillment of the prophecies which they supposedly held so dear, and they, they just simply refused to take the lesson. Afterwards, Jesus, knowing that things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. The fifth word from the cross. Now, these words, I thirst, are scarcely in themselves of any great consequence, of any great, uh, great uh, interest. I'm feeling thirsty, something that we say on a regular basis. Nobody thinks that there's anything of any great consequence in saying that. And St. John introduces these simple words as if they were moments of great, uh, words of great import. 
Afterwards, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And this is a fascinating thing again, because by these words, our Lord finalizes, so to speak, at least a, a symbolically once again, the words which were said of him by David. The last word from the cross is also a quotation from, from the Psalms. This word is not so much a quotation per se, but it is the means by which yet another prophecy was fulfilled. As I said to you yesterday, it's a, it's a beautiful and a wonderful thing to think that our Lord, during his life, during his normal life, prayed with the same words as the church now prays by reciting the Psalms. And that on the cross, he did likewise. Obviously, he didn't have the strength in order to recite the Psalms out loud. That's why we've only got these snippets of what he was saying in the depths of his soul. And these Psalms, of course, are very difficult for us nowadays, as I said yesterday, because they've got so, many, so much antique imagery in them, and imagery which has to do with a, a whole rural and agricultural society which we've, uh, we've lost now, in which uh, it's all these references to animals and things like that don't have the same impact upon us that they did. But as we finished off last night with a psalm, I hope you can bear to hear another psalm, this other psalm, which our Lord again recited while he was on the cross, or at least these words make reference to, to these. Another great messianic psalm, not as blindingly obvious as Psalm 21, but here's Psalm 6 to 8. And try to see in these words the word of our, our Lord himself speaking and accomplishing the prophecies. Save me, O God, for the waters are come in even unto my soul. I stick fast in the mire of the deep, and there is no sure standing. I am come into the depth of the sea, and the tempest has overwhelmed me. I have labored with crying, my jaws have become hoarse, my eyes have failed, whilst I hope in my God. They are multiplied above the hairs of my head, who hate me without cause. My enemies are grown strong, who have wrongfully persecuted me. Then did I pay that which I took not away, which is sin. Then did I pay for what I took not away. O God, thou knowest my foolishness, and my offences are not hidden from thee. Let not them be ashamed for me who look for thee, O Lord, the Lord of hosts. Let them not be confounded on my account who seek thee, O God of Israel. Because for thy sake I have borne reproach. Shame hath covered my face. I am become a stranger to my brethren and an alien to the sons of my mother. For the zeal of thy house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee have fallen upon me. And I covered my soul in fasting, and it, made, it was made a reproach to me. And I made haircloth my garment, and I became a byword to them. They that sat in the gate spoke against me, and they that drank wine made me their song. But as for me, my prayer is to thee, O Lord, for the time of thy good pleasure, O God. In the multitude of thy mercy hear me in the truth of thy salvation. Draw me out of the mire that I may not stick fast. Deliver me from them that hate me and out of the deep waters. Let not the tempest of water drown me, nor the deep swallow me up. And let not the pit shut her mouth upon me. Hear me, O Lord, for thy mercy is kind. Look upon me according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. And turn not away thy face from thy servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Attend to my soul and deliver it. Save me because of my enemies. Thou knowest my reproach and my confusion and my shame. In thy sight are all they that afflict me. My heart hath expected reproach and misery. And I looked for one who would grieve together with me, but there was none. And for one that would comfort me, and I found none. And they gave me gall for my food, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. 
Let their table become as a snare before them, and a recompense and a stumbling block. Let their eyes be darkened that they see not, and their back bend down there always. Pour out thy indignation upon them, and let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their habitation be made desolate, and let there be none to dwell in their tabernacles. Because they have persecuted him whom thou hast smitten, and they have added to the grief of my wounds. Add thou iniquity upon their iniquity, and let them not come unto thy justice. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, and with the just let them not be written. But I am poor and sorrowful, thy salvation, O God, hath set me up. I will praise the name of God with a canticle, and I will magnify him with praise. And it shall please God better than a young calf that bringeth forth horns and hoofs. Let the poor see and rejoice. Seek ye God, and your short soul shall live. For the Lord hath heard the poor, and hath not despised his prisoners. Let the heavens and the earth praise him, the sea and everything that creepeth therein. For God will save Zion, and the cities of Judah shall be built up, and they that dwell there and acquire it by an inheritance. And the seed of his servants shall possess it, and they that love his name shall dwell therein. So you see again, it's a remarkable prophecy of our Lord's suffering, of those who made him suffer, of the condemnation and the curse of the Jews, and then at the end of the Jewish return and repentance, that the Lord shall save Zion, and the cities of Judah shall be built up at the end of the world. Just in these few lines, you have the whole, the whole, the whole prophecy of all the history of the world to come. And again, these, these, these men who should have known better listened to these things, and it made, no, it made no impact upon them. So, when our Lord, when St. John says that our, Lord, that our Lord said these words that the Scriptures might be fulfilled, he was thinking, of course, of this psalm, that by saying, I thirst, he was, in fact, given vinegar to drink, as David had foretold he would be given Remind yourselves constantly, 1,000 years earlier. Astonishing detail that should even have been mentioned. Now, there was a vessel set there full of vinegar. And they, putting a sponge full of vinegar about hyssop, offered it to his mouth. I thirst. Our Lord had now been on the cross for three hours or at least three hours. It was three hours since darkness had covered the earth after our Lord had already been crucified. As you know, he'd been scourged. He had lost vast quantities of blood. And all of this was taking its toll. Crucifixion, as we have said earlier, was one of the uh, cruelest deaths imaginable. But the cruelest part of it was the agony of thirst. You might think, never having been crucified, a, uh, that it's a far more dreadful thing to have nails put through your hands and through your feet than not being given something to drink. But it appears to be not so. That thirst, to die of thirst, is one of the worst and the most painful uh, means of dying, worse than dying of hunger. Because eventually the body becomes a furnace, if you like. That we feel, you know, even if we're feeling slightly thirsty ourselves in a great heat, that when our body, our body becomes entirely warm, heated up, the mouth dries up, that's why is it, the tongue cleaves to the palate, it's impossible to speak. Our Lord was still at a stage now where he was able to speak. And it seems then that then you would go into a delirium. And in that delirium, the only thing that you would be conscious of in the end was this consuming thirst. So that the, even the pains of the nails and the pains of the crown of thorns and all that kind of thing would, be, would, would disappear, so to speak into this last, final, and awful thirst. Now, this is a fascinating thing, that our Lord should have referred to this thirst after he had cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
In the words, the, in, in, the, in the previous words, as we said, and there's no need to labor it too much, that we see how our Lord took upon himself the pain of damnation, the absence of God. Now, you can see he takes on the other penalty of hell, which is what? The pain of fire. That our Lord is consumed in his body, not by actual physical fire, but by the fires of this thirst. So he takes upon himself the double pain of, of hell. And in these two things, our Lord, by crying out in his, in his desolation, my God, my God, why has abandoned me, he who is himself God, was performing an act of profound humiliation. Now, what was the sin of our first parents? The sin of our first parents consisted essentially in pride, in self-deification. The sin of, I mean, we speak about pride. Pride, pride is a term which, of course, can be applied to, to, to all sorts of things, even things which aren't bad. We can say, oh, I'm very proud of my son, for example, and that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. So pride is a word which is which is not really adequate to describe the sin of our first parents. Self-deification is more like it. To put ourselves in the place of God, the ultimate, ultimate form of evil pride. And how did they manifest that? By eating. Isn't that interesting too? By eating. They ate the fruits of the tree of good and evil. We can't say, I don't think we can say that eating a single fruit is a sin of gluttony, but it was certainly the prototype of all the sins of the gluttony, all the things, in fact, all the sins of the flesh to come. And so our Lord here now makes up for that by drinking this vinegar. Now, this in itself is a, is a very fascinating thing because I don't know if you remember that earlier on when our Lord arrived at Calvary and just before they crucified him, before they put the nails into his hands and feet, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh to drink. And he refused to take it. And now he's saying, I thirst. Now, what's the significance of these things? Our Lord wanted to drink the chalice of suffering to the very dregs. Now, although we've said time and time again, crucifixion was the most dreadful and cruel punishment, I think, imaginable to the people at that time, it, and people then were exceedingly cruel. It didn't mean that people were absolutely and totally without, there was nobody at all without any sense of, uh, of compassion or fellow feeling. And so it was allowed that at crucifixions that good people, generally groups of pious women, could offer to the condemned a drink of wine mixed with myrrh. And wine mixed with myrrh apparently has got a narcotic effect. So if you drink a draft of it, it it numbs your senses so that if they drank this just before the nails were put into their hands and their feet, it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't make it painless by any means, as you can well imagine. It would have been the most excruciating agony, but it would have slightly, ever so slightly, diminished the pain. And, of course, the very fact that it was offered at all, even if it didn't actually diminish the pain, the very fact that it was offered at all as, a, as a, an act of kindness would have been some little comfort and some little relief to the condemned. Maybe it was these pious women who, remember the the daughters of Jerusalem, who wept over our Lord. It's very possible that they were either on their way to Calvary to leave the wine, or they were taking it there, or whatever. We don't know. But it may well have been. 
And our Lord, in this case, did not drink it. And he did not drink it because he did not want to alleviate his pains or his sufferings in any way. Because he wanted to suffer all that could be suffered. But now he says, in order to fulfill the scriptures, now he says, I thirst. And in this case, well, what happens? Now, there was a vessel set there full of vinegar. And they putting a sponge full of vinegar about hyssop, offered it to his mouth. And the other said, stay, let us see whether Elias will come to deliver him. When Jesus therefore had taken the vinegar, he said, it is consummated. Now, when he said, I thirst, one of the soldiers there ran forward to give him to drink. And yet, even then, the cruelty of the people standing around, they said, no, 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 don't give him anything to drink at all. Don't give him anything to drink. Let's just wait and see if Elias will come and save him. <laughs> and the soldier said, well, I'll give him to drink anyway because Elias might take a little while in coming. So we might as well keep him going. Now, whether the soldier did that out of mockery or whether the soldier did that, again, out of kindness, we'll, we'll never know. But see, this endless cruelty with which our Lord was faced, even now he's clearly on the point of, well, not necessarily death, because crucifixion, as, is, as we said, could go on for hours and days, but probably quite close now to losing consciousness. And even then, they've got absolutely no pity. I suppose that's why in any kind of a civilized society, now that we don't have public executions, because, of course, public executions are very useful to criminals because it warns them of what will happen to them if they commit serious crimes. That's the upside. But the downside is, of course, it does attract all the dregs, the lowest scum of society who find it, actually find it an entertaining thing to watch people being tortured and, uh, and maltreated and so on. Now, of course, that's provided for by DVDs and videos, I believe. Uh, but at least in any civilized society, this kind of utterly perverse thing is, uh, is forbidden. But our Lord was, was, uh, was subject to all of that terrible torment and all of that terrible abuse. Now, in this case, he did apparently take the drink. Why did he take the drink? Well, the drink is referred to here not as wine at all, but it's referred to as vinegar. Now, whether it was really what we generally call vinegar, or whether it was a cheap, 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 rough wine, which we say, you know, if somebody gives you a bottle of plonk and you say, oh, it's vinegar, it's so awful, which is very possibly what it was, which is what these soldiers these rough, rough men probably were quite used to drinking. And as I say, the crucifixion went on for a long time. So I suppose to amuse themselves and give them a bit of recreation and a bit of a drink, because men didn't drink beer then like they do now, so they drank wine instead. So they probably had this stuff there for that purpose. However, they also probably had it for another purpose, which was probably to clean themselves up, which was probably why there was a sponge there. Remember... The, the whole circumstances of crucifixion are not such as we see on the pretty pictures which adorn the walls of churches. The agonizing and horrible and horrific reality of crucifixion was a very messy business. And you can imagine that when you put nails into people's hands and feet and the amount of blood that comes spurting out and comes spurting out on you if you happen to be putting the nails and things in yourselves, and then by the time you actually raise these people up on the cross and tie them onto it, he, uh, because they had to be tied on as well, of course, otherwise their hands would have ripped off by the weight of, the, by the weight of their bodies pulling against the nails, he, uh, you would be in a pretty dirty state with you know, all this blood on you. 
And so it's very possible that these soldiers had this wine uh, because it would maybe be a bit better than water to actually clean yourself up afterwards. So you can wipe down your clothes, wipe down your hands and your legs and all of that kind of thing. And so they had this sponge there and they therefore gave it to our Lord. And he took it. And why did he take it? Because unlike the previous drink, which he was offered at the beginning of his crucifixion, which would have alleviated his sufferings, in fact, this drink now would have done him no good whatsoever. Now he was completely at the end. He was, his thirst was such that his mouth was being dried up and bunned, and to put rough, cheap vinegar or wine into it would have done nothing but to exacerbate his sufferings. And so he willingly, this time, and it's kind of a mockery to even offer it to him in that situation. A real act of charity would have been to give him a, a sponge of water, not a sponge of wine. And so our Lord takes this so that he can accomplish the scripture and accomplish the suffering, his sufferings to the very last iota, to the very last detail. And that's why St. John makes this big thing about the fact that our Lord said he thirsted, because he was actually, not, he was not actually, in reality, not asking for any alleviation of his sufferings, but he was rather asking to suffer more. And, of course, at the same time, to accomplish the will of his heavenly Father. So we can see how our Lord has gone to every extreme to offer reparation thought of our sins, so that the scriptures should be fulfilled, that he, even down to the smallest detail, and that he even in his body suffers the pains of hell, of fire, of burning. And notice also, which is quite interesting, that when our Lord cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He cried out with a loud voice. But in this case, he doesn't cry out with a loud voice. He simply says, I thirst. And some people see in that a lesson that we've got to draw too. That when we are suffering, when we are in anguish, when we are in trouble, we should be concerned about getting help for our soul. We should be like our Lord, crying out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Come and save me. But when it comes to our physical ailments, we should be far more quiet and far more discreet. When, of course, our own experience tells us that it's rather the contrary. Is it not true that for most of us, we are, more, we are in a greater state of anxiety about the fact that we've got toothache or a headache than the fact that we're in a state of mortal sin? Alas, I think that's only too true. Only too true. And when we, when we tend to be physically ill, we've all got a tendency to go on and on and on about it. Even the very best of us go on and on and on and on about it. And there's another perversity in human nature, I think. It's not a general rule, but it seems to be the case. That the lesser we are, the more we complain. Look at the hypochondriacs. They're always going on about being ill, when in fact, they're not ill at all. It's all in their mind, pure imagination. And yet others who really are ill, desperately ill, seriously ill, looking death in the face, often <laughs> very heroic, nothing to say, quite patient. And we should also be careful about how we ask for help. Like our Lord, discreetly. So our Lord didn't actually ask even for help. He didn't ask for a drink. He didn't say, give me a drink. He didn't say, water, water, which he could have said. He just said, I thirst. Then he took whatever came. That's how we should also try to be in our moments of illness too. How often do people make the burden of those who have got to look after them twice as heavy by endlessly complaining and moaning. Isn't it funny that people who love, for us, love us, who care for us, who nurse us, instead of feeling, feeling grateful, we, all we do is moan and complain and make them feel useless 
and add to their burdens. You see how our Lord did nothing of this. Even in these very simple circumstances, there's so, so many lessons that, that, that we have got to, to learn. Now look at the, every detail of this, of, this, uh, of this crucifixion is full of meaning. And putting a sponge full of vinegar about hyssop, they offered it, he offered it to his mouth, about hyssop. That's a fascinating thing too, isn't it? Hyssop. Have you ever heard of hyssop? Surely you've heard of hyssop. Hyssop's a plant, and when the Jews were freed from Egypt and God commanded them to eat the Paschal Lamb, and of course our Lord, as you know, our Lord on the cross is the true Paschal Lamb who saves the whole world from its sins, that God commanded Moses to tell the Israelites to dip the, a twig, a branch of hyssop into the blood of the Lamb and mark their doors. And also, when the Jews were eventually, when the chosen people were eventually freed from the promised land and they went to Mount Sinai and they made the covenant with God, that God offered sacrifices in order to seal the covenant and he took hyssop and dipped the hyssop in the blood of the, of the sacrifices and sprinkled the people with it as a symbol of the covenant that God made with his chosen people, and that they made with him. And it was with hyssop that the priest used to sprinkle the people with holy water in the temple of Jerusalem. And guess what? What does it say every Sunday at the Asperges? Thou shalt sprinkle me with hyssop, and I shall be cleansed. Have you ever wondered what hyssop actually was? Well, now you know what it is. Thou shalt sprinkle me with hyssop. And that is a, that is a quotation from the, from the Psalm 15, from the Psalm Miserere. Thou shalt sprinkle me with hyssop and I shall be cleansed. And so, even in that little detail, you've got a whole image of the covenant of God with his chosen people. Of the Paschal Lamb, of the covenant of the chosen people, of the blessings of God from heaven. Just as that wine which was offered to our Lord on hyssop was like the blood which was sprinkled by Moses, that that wine is a figure, of course, of the holy sacrament and the fact that we are sprinkled and will be sprinkled with the precious blood of our Lord dying on the cross. Incredible, wonderful image. And then, of course, we must see in these words, I thirst. What is our Lord thirsting for? He's thirsting because he's suffering in his body, but he's really thirsting in his soul also. He's thirsting in his soul because he thirsts for our love. He thirsts for the love of mankind. He thirsts for our souls. If he's actually thirsting in his body, it's because he's thirsting in his soul. He's thirsting for our love. And will we give it back to him? And that's the appeal. When he says, I thirst, he's saying it to me and to you. I thirst for your soul. And remember, earlier on in his life, he when he speaks about the last judgment, the judgment to come, he shall say to the just, you saw, you, you, you saw me thirsty and you gave me to drink. And to the damned, you saw me thirsty and you gave me not to drink. And they say to him, well, when? We never saw you thirsty. When did we ever see you thirsty? We've never met you before. And he said to them, although you did this to the least of my brethren, you did it to me. Our eternal salvation depends on seeing Christ in others and in caring for them, what more are we meant to, to say about seeing Christ in himself? See him thirsting for our soul and yet refusing to give that soul. 
That's the great lesson, the, one, the, the great and amazing lessons that we've got to learn. Our Lord is not interested in anything else from us. He's not interested in us, but us. He thirsts for us. When Jesus, therefore, had taken the vinegar, he said, it is consummated, the sixth word from the cross. Now, when he says it's consummated, he's just said, we've just said that he has, he's gone to every extreme to fulfill all that was foretold about him in the Holy Scriptures, even to these apparently trivial details. He has completed the task which his heavenly Father has sent him to do. His life has reached its end. And it's not reached its end in the sense that he's been overtaken by events, that he's now on the cross and he's lost his blood and so there's nothing for it but to die. He's not saying, I'm finished. You know, I'm finished, I've had enough, I can't, I can't go on any longer. He says, it's finished, it is finished. The great drama of our salvation is finished. The old, all that was foretold of him in the Old Testament has been accomplished. So these words, it's finished, are words of triumph. The declaration, if you like, of success. They're not to be taken as uh, what you usually say when we're finished, that uh, we're beaten. On the contrary, that our Lord has accomplished all that was necessary to do, that all that love could do has now been done. It's really a prayer of thanksgiving, if you like, on the evening of, of his life. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. The chronology of the Holy Gospels is not absolutely um, easy to, uh, to fix to the very, very slightest detail, because at the time of our Lord, people, and even historians, weren't as interested in the precise a, uh, order of events a, uh, as they are now. They tend to put important things first and secondary things afterwards. It's a different, totally different concept. But it would appear here that the moment that our Lord said it is consummated and before he died, that the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. Our Lord, and, and, and that, is very, that is very appropriate. It should have been so. Our Lord says it's finished. All is accomplished. The testament of old has gone. It's past. And at that moment, in the temple of Jerusalem, which our Lord had right in front of his eyes when he was dying on the cross, right across, and not very far away, a few hundred yards away, the veil of the temple was rent in two. Now, what is the veil of the temple? The veil of the temple, the temple of Jerusalem, I don't know if you know much about the temple of Jerusalem. The temple of Jerusalem is not or wasn't like a church. It wasn't like an enclosed area. It was an open area, like most of the, the temples of, the, of, of classical times. They weren't assembly halls. Temples were houses of God. They were houses where the gods lived, and they were worshipped outside. And especially as, in the, as they were the gods, the, the true god as well as the false gods, were offered sacrifices of animals and so on, that you can't you can't do that indoors. You can't light fires and burn carcasses indoors. So these things, were, these things these, the sacrifices were offered to God at the front of the real temple, which was actually a relatively small building, which was divided into two parts, and the holy place and the holy of holies. Now, the temple was built after the plan which God gave to Moses for the tabernacle in the desert. Remember, when the, Jew, when the Jews were moving around in the desert, they, didn't have a, they couldn't have a permanent temple. So they had a movable temple. They had a tent, a tabernacle. That's what a tabernacle means, a tent. But when they came to the promised land, in due course, Solomon built a temple, and he made it of stone. But it was still in the inside, it was still all lined with the set in wood and so on, as Moses, had as Moses had been commanded by God. 
And in the temple, there was the altar of holocausts, where the sacrifices were offered. The animals were killed and burned. And then inside that, there was the holy place, with the seven-branch candlesticks and the, and the loaves of proposition and so on. And then there was a veil, a tabernacle veil. And behind that veil, there was another chamber, which was called the Holy of Holies. And it was called the Holy of Holies because it was the holiest place on earth. And it was there that there was the presence of God. And in the Holy of Holies stood the Ark of the Covenant. Now, each year, God had commanded that the high priest, and only once a year, only once a year, the high priest was to sacrifice animals, two animals, take their blood in a cup, burn the animals on the altar, of course, take the, in the, take the, take the blood in his hands, and only with the blood in his hands, never, ever, ever, ever was anybody to go behind that veil without the blood of these specific sacrifices, and there were sacrifices offered every day in the temple, but this specific sacrifice, only then the high priest on the Day of Atonement to make reparation to God for all of the sins of himself and all the people had to go into that place and sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant. And therefore, that veil is a symbol of the holy place of the Jews, but it's also a symbol ultimately of heaven. And St. Paul in the epistle to the Hebrews says that that is exactly what our Lord did when he died on the cross. He was the true Lamb of God. And he, through his own blood, penetrated the veil of the sanctuary, of the temple. And he himself entered into the Holy of Holies, a high priest forever. And through his blood, he's brought everybody else in to heaven through his blood. And therefore, our Lord having accomplished this, and the Old Testament being ended, the Holy of Holies, the, temp the, 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 uh, the, um, the veil of the Holy of Holies was ripped, miraculously ripped in two, so that it was, so to speak, thrown open for the whole world to see. And that is a symbol of the end of the Old Testament, but also the opening up of heaven to everybody. Now that our blessed Lord had accomplished his divine work. It's a beautiful, marvelous, marvelous thing. Splendid. And of course, we've still got, we've still got this is the imagery of the temple, even in our own churches. The, the sanctuary lamp, which should be in front of the tabernacle, is like the altar of holocaust. You've got the holy of holies, you've got the veil of the temple, the presence of God. It's a fascinating, fascinating image, the whole thing. So see how our Lord had brought everything to completion. Now again, these words, I think we've got to apply to ourselves. We've also got to be able to say at the end of our life, it is finished. It's consummated. It is finished. And we're not, if we say these words, we're not to say them because, as I say, I'm finished. That's it all over and done with now. It's not going to be finished in the sense of our time spans up. It's going to be finished in that we have finished the work which Almighty God has given us to do. That we have completed our purpose in life. So that when our death comes, it's not an accident. Any more than our Lord's death was an accident. I mean, it may be an accident as far as our body is concerned. We might go out into the highway and be run down by a car as you're leaving the church and everybody will say what a terrible accident but it mustn't be an accident in the sense that our life's purpose has been snuffed out like that by accident in other words in order to live our life to the full it's got to be every moment of every day to have been lived to the full we don't know when it's going to end Therefore, that's why we've got to be constantly ready. And what does it mean to be ready? To be ready means to have done all that we must do. 
And so that we, at the end of our days, should be able to say, really and truly, <coughs> it is consummated. <coughs> and the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And saying this, he gave up the ghost. <coughs> and once again, a, uh, I'm not bore you with, an, with, with another psalm, but once again, this is, this, the, these words are from, this time, from a, uh, Psalm 30. So if our Lord recited the first part of this psalm, these are the very last words which he said in his heart. So it's only a few verses, so I'll read you there. In thee, O Lord, have I hoped. Let me never be confounded. Deliver me in thy justice. Bow down thy ear to me. Make haste to deliver me. Be thou unto me a God, a protector, and a house of refuge to save me. For thou art my strength and my refuge. And for thy name's sake, thou wilt lead me and nourish me. Thou wilt bring me out of this snare which they have hidden for me, for thou art my protector. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord, the God of truth. The final, last words of our blessed Lord. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. See how the very first words of our Lord on the cross were, Father, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And he doesn't refer to God again as his Father until the end when he says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Now, what exactly is the sense in which these words are to be taken? I don't know any Greek, but to understand that in Greek, which is, of course, the language in which the gospel was written, that it really says, into thy hands I surrender my soul. I surrender my soul. Which has got a much more powerful, a, uh, powerful meaning than commend. Or, apparently, it's a, a legal term, which means to entrust, I entrust my soul. And it means, apparently it means it's a giving for safekeeping. But for safekeeping in the sense that it will be delivered to you later, rather like if you put something in the bank, you put your valuables in the bank safe, put your, put your tiara, and the ladies put their tiara into the bank until the next ball. And then they get it out again. And so that's right. I think that's, 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 that's the suggestion that there is, that our Lord gives his soul, entrusts his soul to his heavenly Father on the understanding that he's going to get it back again. And isn't that a beautiful, a beautiful concept? Because, of course, it's already a foretelling of the resurrection. That our Lord's soul will be given back to him very shortly on Easter Sunday. So that even in, even in the, the final act of resignation, there's this element of hope and anticipation that his life will be restored. And And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top even to the bottom. And the earth quaked, and the rocks were rent, and the graves were open, and many bodies of the saints that had slept arose, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they came into the holy city and appeared to many. And now, and the centurion who stood against him, seeing that crying out in this manner, he had given up the ghost, said, indeed, this man was the Son of God. Now look at the connection between these two things. Jesus crying with a loud voice, crying with a loud voice, 
said, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And the centurion, seeing that crying out in this manner he had given up the ghost, said, indeed this man was the son of God. Now what's the connection between the two things? About our Lord crying out and the centurion saying, this man was the son of God. I think it's taken to mean that by this time, our Lord should have been quite incapable of crying out at all. Never mind with a loud voice. And that the centurion, who of course was used to seeing people dying on a regular basis and seeing people being crucified fairly frequently, was astonished that after all that our Lord had suffered, that he was capable of crying out and said, this is superhuman. This is not possible. Our Lord might not have been dead by this time, but he would have been unconscious and certainly incapable of shouting out. And so that startling thing, that simple thing of having shouted out, convinced this pagan that there was more to him than ordinary, simple humanity. Now, what are we meant to take from that? I think we've got to take a very, very important lesson from this, which is that our Lord was not killed. I hope there's nobody in this church who thinks that our Lord was killed by the Roman soldiers or by the Jews. It would be... I don't expect anybody to admit it if they thought he was killed. It's an understandable thing to think that having gone through all the pains and the agonies and the sufferings that he was killed, but he was not killed. He could not be killed. If our Lord was actually killed, his death would be a total, well, it would be an interesting thing historically, but it would be absolutely meaningless. Our Lord is God. No one can take his life from him. He says so himself earlier on in his life when he was speaking about the parable of this, this good shepherd. He says, he's, he was speaking about the hirelings and the, the people who don't live, live their life for the sheep. He says, that I, I, lay, I am the true shepherd, good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. In this doth the Father love me, that I lay down my life and I take it up again. And speaking of his life, he says, No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and power to take it up again. This is the commandment which I have received from my Father. Not my will, but thine be done. What was it? It was that our Lord should lay down his life and take it up again. That is the proof of his divinity. That is what proves that he's God. That's why St. Paul says, if Christ be not risen, then your faith is vain, then, then, then our faith is, is vain, uh, is meaningless, and our preaching is meaningless. Our Lord gave up his life voluntarily, freely, of his own will, just by deciding to die, he died. And he came back to life just by deciding to come back to life. These are the prerogatives of God, no one else. Because you read in the Old Testament, and really, or even the New Testament, that, uh, that people were raised up from the dead by the power of God. They didn't decide that they would themselves come back to life. Nor did they just decide that they'd die. And so our Lord's sacrifice was in every respect, every, every respect, a completely free surrender. Our Lord was not condemned by any force stronger than himself. At any moment, he could have stepped down from the cross. Obviously, at any moment, he could have stepped down from the cross and confounded, he, uh, confounded his, uh, his torturers. But he did not do so. 
And even in saying these words, Father, he again, once again, every time he says Father, he's referring to his heavenly Father, he's declaring his, he's declaring his own divinity. He has now been completely and utterly strict of everything. I mean, he never had much anyway. As we know, our Lord lived in dire poverty for most of his life. And in the end, he was stripped of everything totally. And so he gives all that he's got left and the only thing that he's got left to his heavenly father. Again, in this, we've got to see that we've also got to be stripped before we die. We've got to have nothing left except our soul. Again, as we were saying earlier, if our life is to be truly finished, truly consummated, everything must be put in order. See, our Lord put everything in order. He even arranged for his holy mother to, uh, to be looked after by St. John. He put all his affairs in order. He was stripped of everything. And that's how we've got to be. Not necessarily, of course, that we've got to be like our Lord, absolutely penniless and having nothing in the world. But in our hearts, we've got to have stripped ourselves. We've got to not be detached to anything perishable and of earth. And we've also got to, like our Lord, willingly, absolutely willingly, give ourselves to him. We've got to say these same words as he said. See how the, the, whole, the, whole, the whole thing, he cried with a loud voice, showing that he was not dying out of weakness. And he bowed his head deliberately. He deliberately bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Gave up the ghost, of course, uh, is one of, these, uh, one of these scriptural terms which has passed into popular, um, popular parlance now. And, uh, and like so many things, it, they, they lose their sense and they lose their meaning. So that if you say, if you say somebody gave up the ghost, it means, well, they, they've had it, really. It's things have overtaken them. But it's not, it's not what it means at all. Actually, it means exactly the opposite. When it says our Lord gave up the ghost, what is the ghost? The ghost is his soul, that he voluntarily gave it up. And that's how we likewise must be. So he died not out of weakness, but he died by his almighty power. And of course, by dying, he died that we should live. That his agony on the cross was the birth pangs, if you like, of the new race which was to be born, the new race who live in the life and the eternal life of Almighty God. And so our Lord cries out, if you like, you know, like a, a mother in labor on the cross as he brings forth the child, uh, brings forth the child of the church. Or he's like a a lion roaring before he seizes his prey. And so our blessed Lord, the conquering lion of Jews, cries out before he surrenders all to his heavenly Father, surrenders his great victory into the hands of his heavenly Father. And so he's dead now. And somebody said, now he's dead, the sinner can breathe easily. Whew. That must have been a big relief to these high priests, to these Pharisees, to all the enemies of our blessed Lord, that at last he was gone. At last he had died in these ignominious circumstances. He was completely and utterly finished. He'd said so himself. 
and they believed that they were triumphant. And since we are all sinners, of course, we can say the same thing. We can now breathe easily because he's died to save us. Isn't that a beautiful thing? We can truly breathe easily because now, no matter how bad we have been, no matter how bad we are, no matter how bad we may become, no matter what happens, when we consider our blessed Lord on the cross, when we consider the beautiful things that we've considered during this mission, that we will always, hopefully, always be able to breathe easily. St. Paul says that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so it is. But somebody else said, I don't know who, it's not so fearful a thing to fall into the hands of a dying God. It's not so fearful to fall into the hands of a God who is dying for love of us. So let our hearts really be at rest, at peace, at ease. Let's seek to return the enormous, unspeakable love which our blessed Lord has shown towards us. And so that at every day and at the end of our days, we may be able to make truly his words our own. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Lord Jesus, receive my soul. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Lord, have mercy on us. Christ, have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy on us. Christ, hear us. God, the Father of heaven. God, the Son, Redeemer of the world. God, the Holy Ghost. Holy Trinity, one God. Jesus, eternal wisdom. Jesus, sold for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus, prostrate on the ground in prayer. Jesus, strengthened by an angel. Jesus, in thine agony, bathed in a bloody sweat. Jesus, betrayed by Judas with a kiss. Jesus, bound by the soldiers. Jesus, forsaken by thy disciples. Jesus, brought before Annas and Caiaphas. Jesus, struck in the face by a servant. Jesus, accused by false witnesses. Jesus, declared guilty of death. Jesus, spat upon. Jesus, blindfolded. Jesus smitten on the cheek. Jesus thrice denied by Peter. Jesus delivered up to Pilate. Jesus despised and mocked by Herod. Jesus clothed in a white garment. Jesus rejected for Barabbas. Jesus torn with scourges. Jesus bruised for our sins. Jesus esteemed a leper. Jesus covered with a purple robe. Jesus crowned with thorns. Jesus struck with a reed upon the head. Jesus demanded for crucifixion by the Jews. Jesus condemned to an ignominious death. Jesus given up to the will of thine enemies. Jesus loaded with the heavy weight of the cross. Jesus led like a sheep to the slaughter. Jesus stripped of thy garments. Jesus fastened with nails to the cross. Jesus reviled by the malefactors. Jesus promising paradise to the penitent thief. Jesus commending St. John to thy mother as her son. Jesus declaring thyself forsaken by thy father. Jesus in thy thirst given gall and vinegar to drink. Jesus testifying that all things written concerning thee were accomplished. Jesus commending thy spirit into the hands of thy father. Jesus obedient even to the death of the cross. Jesus pierced with a lance. Jesus made a propitiation for us. 
Jesus taken down from the cross. Jesus laid in the sepulchre. Jesus rising gloriously from the dead. Jesus ascending into heaven. Jesus our advocate with the Father. Jesus sending down thy disciples, the Holy Ghost, the Paraclete. Jesus exalting thy mother above the choirs of angels. Jesus who shall come to judge the living and the dead. Lamb of God, who take us to be the sins of the world. Lamb of God, who take us to be the sins of the world. Lamb of God, who take us to be the sins of the world. Jesus, hear us. We adore thee, O Christ, and we praise thee. Let us pray, Almighty and Eternal God, who has appointed thine only begotten Son, the Saviour of the world, and has will to be appeased with his blood. Grant that we may so venerate this price of our salvation, and by its might be so defended upon earth from the evils of the present life, that in heaven we may rejoice in its everlasting fruit, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the unity of the Holy Ghost, world without end. O my Lord Jesus Christ, who to redeem the world is vouchsafed to be born amongst men, to be circumcised, to be rejected and persecuted by the Jews, to be betrayed by the traitor Judas with a kiss, and as a lamb gentle and innocent to be bound with cords and dragged in scorn before the tribunals of Annas, Caiaphas, Pilate, and Herod, who didst suffer thyself to be accused by false witnesses, to be torn by the scourge and overwhelmed with opprobrium, to be spat upon, to be crowned with thorns, buffeted, struck with a reed, blindfolded, stripped of thy garments, to be nailed to the cross and raised on it between two thieves, to be given gall and vinegar to drink, and to be pierced with a lance, do thou, O Lord, by these thy most sacred pains, which I all unworthy call to mind, and by thy holy cross and death, save me from the pains of hell, and vouchsafe to bring me whether thou didst bring the good thief who was crucified with thee, who with the Father and the Holy Ghost livest and reigneth, God, for ever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. <laughs>